everyone, and welcome to the Word to Fintech podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is James Paris, CEO of Avant, one of the pioneers in online lending dedicated to providing banking solutions for the U.S. middle class. Since 2012, Avant has served over 1.5 million customers with over $6.5 billion in loans and 400,000 credit cards. The company has also raised over $600 million of equity from top VCs, including General Atlantic, JP Morgan, Peter Thiel, Rivet Capital, DFJ, Tiger Global, QED, August Capital, and many, many more. We talked about Jane's background as a traditional investment banker, the story behind Avant, their decision to spin off Amount, a SaaS business, his thoughts on the evolution of the fintech lending and underwriting space, talent and company culture, and why you should always be nice to your interns and junior employees, and a whole lot more. Now join me in a fantastic conversation with James Paris. Well, James, thank you so much for joining us on the Words of Fintech podcast. Really excited to have you all the way from Chicago. Maybe we can get started by hearing a bit about your background and the steps that you took to get to your current role. Yeah, absolutely, Miguel. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Really excited about the opportunity to talk a little bit more about Avant in this forum and happy to start with that. So again, just quick background. My name is James Paris. I'm the CEO at Avant. And Avant has been around for nearly eight years. It was founded right at the very beginning of 2013. So we're kind of eight years young, which I think in the world of fintech, you know, means we're, we've got a little bit of gray hair at this point, and we've got some bumps and bruises, but we've got a lot of successes as well. So the business, well, I guess I'll give a little bit of an overview of the business and then a little bit on sort of my background and how I got there, if that's okay. That's perfect. Yeah, so the business was originally uh, started with three founders, Al Goldstein, who was the original CEO of the business, and Paul Zang and John Sun. And really, the vision was around bringing responsible credit products to a category of consumers that really weren't being served well by the banks after the financial crisis. And so, you know, what we call that middle income consumers or near prime consumers, and effectively, a lot of the for a variety of reasons, including regulatory capital requirements that banks have, as well as sort of biases of of regulators and just sort of, I think, their own bumps and bruises coming out of the financial crisis. There was very limited credit that was sort of going in an efficient way to consumers in this near-prime or middle-income segment. And so Avant saw a real opportunity in that area. There are a handful of more brick and mortar players, but nothing really in the digital only space. And given sort of what was happening in the broader economy in terms of what you want to call it, the Amazon effect or anything else, really the digitization of so many things that consumers care about, including finance, it seemed like a really interesting opportunity. And so Avant started with, with an unsecured loan product, which Again, dedicated to that near-prime consumer, which tends to mean in the 600s from a FICO standpoint, that generally helps orient people around what we're talking about here, although we don't really use FICO in our underwriting. But so for the loan customers, that's about a 640 to 650 FICO score. We also have a credit card product, which we launched about three years ago, which is also growing 
extremely rapidly today. And that's also dedicated to a very similar segment, slightly, a little bit slightly down from a FICO profile in the 625 range. And then we've recently launched auto-secured products. And really what our vision is to be the premier digital bank for those near-prime consumers and to be able to address any number of needs that they have from a credit perspective over time. And so that's why we're continuing to add products and looking at making some substantial investments in things like point of sale and deposits, as well as the products that I already mentioned. And as I said, but kind of bringing it back to me and how did I get there? So interestingly enough, you know, the world's kind of a small place. And I mentioned Al Goldstein, the original CEO and founder of the business. Well, it's not a complete coincidence that Al's first job graduating from university at the University of Illinois was actually working for me (laughs) with a relatively small team at uh, Deutsche Bank in investment banking. And so our relationship goes all the way back to the very beginning, sort of for him when he uh, came out of college. And, you know, he wasn't around a a super long time. And then he wound up starting a business that um, wound up becoming Enova International, which is a publicly traded fintech business that's more in the deep subprime space, very different from Avant, but certainly a lot of learnings and expertise. And ultimately, when Avant was formed, Al took some of the key players from those days at Enova, which formed the initial nucleus of the company. My background was more around capital markets and uh, debt structuring, as well as lots of M&A and other things. Uh, After having initially started with a legal background and doing big law in New York after... um, after going to law school on the East Coast. So I had a background in capital markets and knew not only Al, but a handful of other folks at the company. They were about two years into their journey. And you know, it was something where it just seemed like a tremendous opportunity to me. I was able to convince my wife and family that you know we could move from New York City to Chicago to take on this really interesting opportunity with Avant. And I actually started out sort of designing all of the capital raising and capital structuring for the company. So we did an equity, our most, it was actually the last equity round that we did in the fall of 2015. And we started doing securitizations of the loan product where we would bring those to the capital markets to distribute those in a package form to sort of replenish the liquidity for the company. And, um, we also we did a lot of things interfacing with effectively the street because we at that time also sold a substantial amount of our loans. So spent a lot of time around all of those things. Avant's a little bit different than some of the other players in the digital lending and credit space from the standpoint that we actually do have a very substantial balance sheet ourselves. And I think that that's helped us weather the storm during COVID and other times of market or economic disruptions because of the uh, substantial revenues and cash flow that come from having that uh, book of over a billion in assets um, on our balance sheet. And uh, that's sort of where I got started, spent a lot of time around the overall strategy for the business over time. And, And that's really where some folks may have heard about an affiliate of ours amount, which we spun out of the company at the beginning of this year, I spent a lot of time in helping building build up that business. And ultimately, and we may touch on this later, we spun that business out. It's very exciting. That was essentially a lot of the core technology that we developed at Avant. And that business, we've repositioned it so that it not only serves Avant's technology needs from a platform perspective, but is also doing that with a number of large banks 
And that's a separate business now, although we have quite a bit of overlap from an ownership standpoint. And then I came back to Avant really at the request of Al and the board to take the role of president and then ultimately CEO. So long-winded, I guess, intro, but that's a little bit about the journey so far. Really, really fascinating, James. And we have a lot to unpack. So I'm excited for a conversation. Now, one thing I've always heard in the, I guess, startup world is always be good and kind to everyone because your intern might be your boss tomorrow, right? And, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm the living embodiment of that. Life came (laughs) pretty quickly when, um, you know, I went to work for Al. But it's also a great, I mean, it's just a great lesson the way that you put it because I think that it is a small world out there. And the assets of all these businesses ultimately are the people. And it's just, for me, it's just been a big, big treat to be able to join a team that I had so much trust and admiration for and a long history with. And I think that, you know, you see that a lot in business across the board where, you know, there are opportunities present themselves. And if you've got the right team and the right people, you know, you can go in a lot of do a lot of really productive things and go in a lot of different directions. And so I like that. That sounds like a great sort of lesson to live by. Love it. Now, you've mentioned you've been around for eight years, and we all know that for fintech, it's basically dog years, right? You, you are not really eight years old. You're a lot older than that. Tell us about the evolution of the ecosystem, because when you started, I guess you had a little bit of competition from incumbents, although you, know, you were definitely targeting a an area where you saw white space, but now you have this new entrance. There are actually other fintech players, right? How have you seen the evolution of the competitive landscape? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's so many different ways to kind of approach that question. So I'll take it a couple of different ways. Avant intentionally sort of positioned itself, as I mentioned at the outset, around the near prime category of consumers, specifically because we perceive there to be a little bit less competition there. It's traditionally a harder area to underwrite in. And I think fundamentally, our um, underwriting techniques and sort of all the data that we have accumulated over time and all of the testing that we've done has really informed us in what's a very complicated space. I mean, I think there's a reason why, you know, there's additional regulatory capital that banks are required to have and why a lot of the regulators, you know, sort of maybe informally dissuade or attempt to dissuade uh, banks or discourage from going into that space if they don't have a lot of experience. There's clearly uh, some notable exceptions like Capital One and Discover, who's got a lot of history in, you know, more into that part of the categories. So that's, that's the first thing. And I think fundamentally, we thought the reason why we wanted to be in that space rather than prime and super prime is because we thought that over time, the banks should win a lot of that space. And specifically because they have a really hard cost of capital to co- compete with in the form of insured, you know, federally insured deposits. So with that in mind, although you know, Lending Club and, and others had a nice head start from the standpoint of technology and products that people really liked, we were concerned that ultimately you know, banks would sort of close the gap on technology and be in a position to compete more effectively with better technology. and ultimately bring that cost of capital to bear. So we specifically, you know, went to work in the near prime space. Interestingly, that's really how the whole amount business sort of germinated was because we were working and trying to figure out how to partner with banks, maybe to be able to offer credit products to their customers 
that are in the near prime space because it's a huge part of the economy. I mean, in general, that super prime and upper prime category that banks want to serve might only be 20 or 25% of their deposit customer base with a huge swath kind of in the near prime category and then some in subprime. And so we initially were talking about how could we partner in a manner that we could help these banks satisfy their customers' needs through offering Avant products. And the conversation sort of evolved into, that's interesting, but we would really like to be able to do that directly ourselves. And so we started to build platforms and ultimately spun out the amount business. So I would say in the near prime category, for us anyway, there is certainly competition, but we feel a little bit more isolated, bigger moats, if you will, from the standpoint of the, I guess, the difficulty of underwriting that space, as well as, you know, the advantage that we've built up with years and years of data. You know, you continue to see new entrants, but we continue to progress on our side and continue to develop, you know, much more sophisticated approaches across the board, whether that's finding ways to simplify the customer experience around verifications to make that more seamless and quicker and automated while managing fraud appropriately is a a balance that anyone sort of doing a digital business has to be thinking about. So we feel good about our positioning. In addition to that, we've been expanding our product suite. So we launched a credit card product about three years ago. And our modus operandi, generally speaking, is around new products or extensions of existing products we have a platform that allows us to test into these things where we can control very directly sort of how much volume is going into a test policy so that we can get a chance to actually evaluate the results from all sorts of standpoints, whether that's how effective the marketing uh, might be, if it's a different marketing channel, how effective the product is from the standpoint of customers converting with it, as well as the ultimate performance of a cohort that maybe we're testing into. So we employ that a lot, and we've been able to grow the credit card business very substantially. I think we will issue about 230,000, 240,000 cards to new customers in 2020, despite the pandemic, which is our biggest year yet, a little bit more than double last year. So you know, we try to stay ahead of the competition by continuing to offer more and better products to our customers as well as continuing to innovate the platform and the approaches that we use. That's impressive. Now, sounds like you have developed your own methodology for underwriting and assessing credit of your own customers. You're not relying on FICO. Can you talk a bit more about this? Yeah, absolutely. It's at the core, I think, of our competencies. So we do not use FICO in the underwriting. We use a variety of models and modeling techniques the core underwriting model is a XGB boost, you know, tree-based model. And it's been refined a number of times over the years. We're on our fifth generation of that model. And in addition to that, we utilize a number of other models, including a proprietary fraud model that we've developed, which you know is incredibly effective at, at sorting out a likely digital fraud, but in a way that creates as little friction as possible. And a number of other things that look at the trends that might be happening with individual consumers. So we have a model that looks at uh, whether someone might be trending toward a bankruptcy, for example, that looks at uh, trending data. So we incorporate all of these things into our underwriting processes and have a very 
you know, I guess proprietary unique approach with respect to how we do that. I think fundamentally, you know, the techniques in terms of what we're trying to assess and how we're evaluating things are not in and of themselves revolutionary. I think they're the same kinds of approaches that banks would like to take. I think a little bit the difference is we are staying at the leading edge of what data is available and continuing to evolve the platform to be able to take advantage of both uh, newly available uh, data as well as continuing to refine in models based on the data that it gets generated from our actual production of credit products out into the marketplace. So it's a never-ending investment, I guess, would be maybe the right way to describe it that we make in these areas. And, uh, you know, we're currently working on the next generation of both the credit card model and a loan model as we speak. And so we're very excited about those because what generally we are able to do in connection with that is effectively expand the TAM, the addressable, approvable market that we have, which is really what we want to do as a company. Fundamentally, one of the things that I think has made us successful is that we really believe that the products and services that we're offering out to customers are sorely needed by this customer base and that they really are underserved. And as I said, there are some brick and mortar players out there, but those aren't always a great option for people going into somewhere and going through the process of an interview and waiting maybe several days to hear back with the results of whether you qualify for a loan. In a lot of cases, people just need access to credit that's fair and responsible, transparent products relatively quickly. And we've devised a way to do that that we think is responsible and we want to be able to serve more customers. And uh, that's really our mission at the end of the day is being able to deliver those kinds of credit products to that middle-class consumer. James, one of our favorite topics on this show is talent and culture. I'm sure you're, you're well-versed on this topic as a leader of the company. As a fast-growing company, you've mentioned expansion a number of times. Now, what's your approach to recruiting the best talent? And then once they join the company, what kind of culture have you built within the company? Well, it's a great question. We do think a lot about this, and it's something that, that we get really excited about because you know we love working at a bot in general. And so you know, how have we done that, and, and why is it effective? So we take a multi-pronged approach from a recruiting standpoint, I think. And with startups, things evolve over time. You know, in the early days, there was a nucleus of people, as I mentioned earlier, that had known each other, had worked together, had seen success. That only gets you, that burning that midnight oil and getting the right team together is absolutely the right approach at the beginning and it's sort of unavoidable. But then over time, how do you build up the organization? And so, you know, we took an approach a number of different things. We created a program for bringing talent in at relatively junior levels. That was a rotational program where people would go through a number of different disciplines, including data and product and potentially risk, potentially finance. It depends a little bit on the individual in the background, but really to give them a multidisciplinary understanding of the business and then look to place them. And it would depend a little bit on how technical uh, the people might be there was essentially almost might think about it as two programs, but that was a really successful program for us. There's a number of very senior leaders, including the executive level between the two companies, Avant and Amount, that sort of came in those early days through those 
those sorts of programs. And I think, you know, we've carried that forward on a number of different fronts. We've tried to build good relationships with some of the universities in the greater kind of greater Chicago Midwest area where we can effectively recruit folks direct out of engineering programs or um, undergraduate and graduate programs. And then I think from a cultural standpoint, you know, we really try to emphasize allowing people kind of the meritocracy approach that I think most of us, a lot of people talk about. I mean, as I mentioned, we've got a number of very senior people that sort of came in a few years ago at at relatively junior levels. And so I think sort of creating a culture where the sky's the limit for the individual, but we set them up uh, for success with the right levels of support is really important. And then obviously you got to kind of try to make it fun. And I think being part of a growing organization that's, you know, doing interesting things with good leaders. I mean, those are kind of table stakes that help set the tone, but we do a lot of things across the board in terms of engaging with the entire team. You know, we do very frequent town halls. We do surveys. We try to do a lot of fun activities. Obviously, with COVID, that's thrown a pretty big wrench into things because it's essentially virtual as opposed to doing all the things in person. And we have uh, kind of a pretty big atrium space where we're able to gather almost the whole company together. So I guess all of those things, as well as celebrating successes internally, you know, we give out awards on a quarterly basis kind of across lots of different groups in the company. So we try to really celebrate successes. We try to celebrate individual achievement, but in the context of what the overall company's goals are. So we've got a phenomenal team focused on talent within the company and they've just done a great job. So I think we've had very, very little attrition, particularly at more senior levels and it's been a great experience for me and it's hard to capture. Culture is kind of a hard thing to sort of define and, you know, A plus B equals C. It's not always that easy, but it is something that I think requires a lot of concerted effort and dedication to because, um, uh, as I said earlier, ultimately, whatever business you're in, the, the people that you have is the most important asset for the company. Yeah. Having worked at a couple of large banks and now being very involved with fintech startups, it sounds to me like you're taking the best of both worlds because a rotational program is something very typical for big banks, but then you are applying it to a very entrepreneurial culture of empowerment. So I like that. I guess we can talk a little bit about a topic that I know you think about, and it's the challenges and opportunities that fintechs encounter, particularly when working with incumbent banks. I know that you've thought about this what are your thoughts around this partnership? And I guess it's an evolving partnership between fintechs and banks. It's a great question. I mean, fintech is, can mean so many things these days in terms of the breadth of you know, areas and businesses that you'd be talking about. So I think with respect to much of the land of fintech, if you will, there are a lot of opportunities where banks are ultimately the customer base or could be. And so I think for those companies, it's it's fairly straightforward in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. The difficulty becomes being approved as an important vendor to the bank, particularly if you're trafficking in private information or things like that, or plug into a system that's you know critical to underwriting. That's a very high bar, which we learned very well with our amount business that we've referenced a couple of times. And so those processes would typically take with these larger banks anywhere between 
three or four months if they're really efficient on their end to nine, 10 months to be onboarded through their processes. And there's a lot of sort of big company things that they're looking for to kind of check the right boxes. So I would say that people should have eyes open on that to the extent that that's sort of what their business entails. In addition, the sales cycle on big banks tends to be very long, in part because the onboarding is such a big deal, but also because of the approval and decision processes are just sort of slow and multi-headed. So I think something to be aware of and thoughtful about. I think in general, though, I don't think you have a situation where you know fintechs are going to displace the banks, but I think there's a big, big market for a lot of fintech companies that are going to be able to do things better than banks can do them or essentially more effectively. And I do think that there's room for both. And so it's not always pure head-to-head competing. And for our business, you know, we're, as I said, we really try to be in a position in the marketplace where we're not really competing head-to-head with them because of the cost of capital. And so it's not as top of mind for me with Avant these days, but it's certainly fascinating to see how things are going to continue to evolve. And certainly a lot of M&A activity kind of across the board in some cases where banks are buying fintechs and some cases where you know fintechs are, are kind of just getting bigger and it's really neat space to be a part of. And I guess this is a great segue to talk a little bit about Amount, the spin-off, because Avant's business, you know, arguably is a competitor to a lot of lenders and banks, but Amount actually provides a very valuable service to incumbent banks, right? Take us through the evolution of Amount. Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. So the seeds for Amount were planted four or five years ago now at this point. And really, as I said before, Avant was focused on the near prime customer base, which really wasn't something that the banks were able to lend and offer credit to effectively. And so there was this idea about, well, gosh, could we white label what we're doing? And then it became clear that really the better approach would be to to develop a platform that had a lot of configurability and modularity to where you could allow a bank to customize what it wanted from its digital credit products. And so essentially that is Amount's business. So I won't try to kind of cover everything that they do, but it's uh, you know lending and credit platforms which would incorporate fraud mitigation options, how you verify the identity of a customer, and all the things that are required around legal and regulatory considerations when you're onboarding a new customer, as well as the underlying technology to create the loan and then book it either on a proprietary system that Amount has or back onto the bank's legacy system. So, you know, and now it's expanding into a number of other directions, including point of sale technology that could be employed by banks. And so, you know, you're right. It was a bit interesting in the early days that some of the banks were a little bit wary of the fact that Avant was also in the space as a lender and creditor to consumers. But I think they got comfortable around the point that we weren't really competing. And I think when they got under the hood and were able to see the level of sophistication in terms of how we were approaching all these complex issues around underwriting and fraud, And we also had years and years of results in terms of the performance of loans and credit cards where there was definitive proof that what we were doing really worked and was very effective. And so I think that was a huge factor in 
getting the banks you know more comfortable, as well as the fact that Avant, we had invested very heavily in our own legal and compliance sort of infrastructure so that effectively Avant in some ways operates almost like a bank in terms of how much rigor we put into things like approving changes to our underwriting policies and models. And so we're just very buttoned down. So even if it's a multi-month process to get through a due diligence review with a bank, we were very well equipped to do that because of the business that we had within Avant. So we really never saw that competitive tension. Although what we did decide over time was that the businesses of Avant and Amount are fundamentally, they were diverging. And you know we wanted to set up both businesses to be able to be successful as possible. And to do that, we thought we should separate them, bring in some additional capital for the Amount business to allow it to continue to build out the platform over time. In Avant's case, you know, we had effectively been funding a lot of the growth of, of Amount through the Avant business. Avant's been profitable for a few years now. And you know, we were in a position to be able to do that. But we made the decision probably 18 to 24 months ago now that it was going to make a lot more sense over time. And both businesses would better be able to reach their potential if we separated them and, and let them sort of both go after their core their business visions and focus on their respective core competencies. I don't know if that answered your question, but hopefully that helped a little. Yeah, no, it definitely does. And it's interesting. It sounds like it took you about a year to complete the spin-off process. Actually, it did. And there were a few, you know, some things in a, from a transition services standpoint that even extended a little bit beyond that year. But in general, I think we were really happy across the board with how the team focused on what we needed to get done. And it was an incredibly complex undertaking to separate the businesses. But it was something that I think was just a great learning experience for everybody and um, really interesting. And we got it done. (laughs) We we went well. So we were pretty pretty happy with it at the end of the day. Yeah. And uh, happy to report we've had Adam Hughes, CEO of Amount, on the show as well. I think the month or two months after the spin-off was completed. So exciting interviews that we're getting. <laughs> so I guess um, I was mentioning to you before we start recording that we have quite a broad audience and some of our main listeners, our most avid listeners, are either aspiring builders, entrepreneurs, or also quite candidly, probably future CEOs, you know? And we have we have, we have a CEO right here. Would love to hear some of your reflections and leadership lessons that you've amassed over the years. Yeah, I'm happy to share a few thoughts. Look, I think that as a CEO, you've got a handful of jobs. One of your jobs is to determine overall the vision for the business over a multi-year period and determine sort of what are the goals that you have? What is it that you're trying to build? How do you get there? And sort of plot that journey and also motivate the whole company and all the teams around, you know, really adopting and, you know, living kind of that vision. So I think that's the first thing. And then it's having the right team. It's recognizing if you don't have the right team, that's a big deal. And being aggressive around 
sort of making sure that organizationally, again, I go back to the people, I think is the most important asset in getting your organization set up the right way. And typically, what I've seen over time is that if you have a suspicion, if you think something is potentially not going in the right direction or is an issue, you just have to address it very quickly, whatever it might be, whether it's around people or a strategy or the product. That doesn't mean that you should be pivoting nonstop. I think one of the things we're still trying to get better at is just the most simple aspect of planning, prioritization, and complex project management because we've become a much... We're still a pretty small company, but we're a lot lot bigger and more complicated than we used to be. So I think it's a mix of both the really high-level vision as well as being very attuned to the numbers and the business and the people and where you're going. And again, like we joked about before, never forgetting kind of the golden rule of treating people well, but holding high standards. So a lot of what I'm saying is, is I'm listening to myself comes out as truisms and things, but they were and they're important. And when you talk about sports and everything starts with learning the fundamentals and you know building off that, I think that's true in, in business as well. So building a really good foundation in terms of the vision and the team is the most critical early thing. And then the other thing that I think I've observed because I had a um, career for a number of years in bigger organizations and then came to a startup. And as I mentioned, part of our culture was to allow people to really spread their wings and go. And I think that's been fantastic. But when you see people that are maybe a little bit younger or maybe a little bit less experienced, Sometimes the sort of the the people issues can be, from a management standpoint, can be a little bit more of a challenge or maybe folks don't have as much experience. So I think that's been one of the things as well that from a talent standpoint, we've probably put some additional emphasis on, which is as the company is growing, making sure that the managers throughout the organization understand like how and when to have a harder conversation with somebody directly in order to properly motivate. And just make sure that there's good open communication. If there's anything else that I would stress, I think transparency is really, really important across the organization. So we try to be, I mean, we're the most transparent company I've seen in terms of what we share with the entire company around financial results every month, every quarter, and where we're headed and in terms of both strategy as well as financial goals. And we don't think there's anything... You know, there's nothing to hide. I mean, this should all be sort of out there. And I guess that goes back to culture as well. I think transparency is something people really value. So I don't know, Miguel, those are a few thoughts, I guess, off the cuff. Oh, that's great. Straight from the source for everyone listening. (laughs) Great. No, listen, James, really inspired by this conversation and fascinating stuff you have going on. Before we let you go, last question we'd love to ask all of our guests, and it's to hear a little bit more about your personal side and maybe you can tell some of the hobbies that you enjoy outside of work. And I guess you know, <laughs> they, they might have changed a little bit during quarantine. No, sure. You know, I'll happy to share that a little bit, although I don't know if I'm, I'm as cool as some of the other folks you've had on, but uh, I've got a family, a wife and a daughter. We're all camped out here in Chicago, which is a lot of fun. It really is actually. It's been nice to actually be um, all together for... I think we'll all look back on this with mixed emotions for a bunch of different reasons, but that's one of the things that I'll cherish. From a hobby standpoint, I'm actually a big guitar guy. So I, I love the guitar. I've been playing for years. I've got probably more than I'd want to admit, although I guess I just alluded to that. And uh, 
that's been a great hobby during COVID because you can kind of do it at home. I can plug my electric guitar in and I've got a headphone amp so I don't disturb the family when I'm doing it late at night. And in the wintertime, although I don't know if this winter is going to do it, but I'm big into you got to get out of Chicago when it gets dark and dreary and the days are really short. So we try to get out and do a little bit of skiing out west uh, for a couple of weekends. So don't claim to be any good really at either the guitar or the snowboard, but they're both healthy, good endeavors and hobbies to have. So I highly recommend them both. If you have any recordings, guitar recordings out there, we'd love to include them at the end of this interview. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to do that to myself, although I don't blame you for asking. I think that certainly this is, a, like I said, it's a hobby and, and probably one that's best not you know, shared so, so broadly, but uh, appreciate the offer. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, James, again, thank you so much. Congrats on everything you're doing and then props to you for taking the jump from traditional banking to something more entrepreneurial and then growing it to new heights. So we're excited to have had you on the show. And once the quarantine is over, I'm sure the students at Wharton will love to see you on campus. So that invitation is open. Wow, that's exciting, Miguel. Let's follow up on that when we get past uh, where we're at now with COVID. But thanks so much. It's been a pleasure to be on. Thanks to you, James. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 